Good morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. And while you're turning there, I want you to think back to a time in your life where you felt completely desperate. A time where you felt there was nowhere else to turn. A point in your life where you would do anything to see this problem resolved. A time in your life where you had no idea how this issue would come to a conclusion. It could have been a family event that occurred where someone was sick. It could be the death of a loved one or a close friend. It could be even a financial trial that you went through. Or it could be even this pandemic that we've all been going through. I know for me, there was at least two times in my life where I felt completely desperate. The first story that I want to share with you of a time where I felt desperate took place a few years ago when I was in college. It was my freshman year of college, and I had been taking classes with the hopes of getting into this nursing program the next year. I needed good enough grades so that I could get into the program the following year, and at the time, I didn't have a lot of money to get through college. I had no financial aid or no grants, but I had enough to squeeze by because I was a full-time waiter at the time. And throughout school, it was difficult, and it had some of its hardships, but everything was going pretty well. Until one night, there was a, a day that kind of spiraled me into this time of dep- uh, just desperation. And one night, I was with my brother Luke, and we were both held up at gunpoint as we were talking outside of a grocery store. And I had some cash stolen, and I had my phone stolen. And in God's mercy, he delivered me from that time. And I look back on that time, and I feel so thankful for him sparing my life. But that's not necessarily where this story ends. Because after this event took place, my life still went on. I still had school, but I began having difficulty focusing on school because of the events that just happened of me being held up. And it would replay over and over and over again in my mind. And I had tests to prepare for, and I had classes to go to. And I began experiencing difficulty with learning and retaining knowledge to the point where my grades actually were starting to slip in a class that really mattered for my admissions for this nursing program. And keep in mind, they only want A's. They don't accept anything less than that. And at the time, I had a D in this class. And the only thing that could bring up my grade in this class was this one final test I had. And likely, uh, like I said earlier, I only had a few dollars of cushion room because I was living pretty close to paycheck by paycheck at the time. And a week after that time of when I was held up at gunpoint, I was in uh, my car and I was going down this uh, road and I was hit suddenly from behind by this driver who was cut off on the road and I was practically stopped. And to make matters worse, immediately after being hit, my back began getting sore and I actually needed to see a chiropractor for a couple of visits Uh, due to the soreness and due to the pain I experienced. But at the time, I figured, you know, it's all right. I'll be fine. I clearly wasn't at fault. I'll get reimbursed by the insurance company, you know, and everything will be fine. But I was wrong, because when we finally came to the claims section, I was told by his insurance company that it was neither of our faults, because he had been cut off by what they would call a phantom driver, who cut him off and drove away. And so in that instance, we're both responsible to pay our own damages and to move on. And so I ended up taking $1,000 that I had set aside for my tuition bills coming up, and I had to use it for paying off my car to get it repaired. 
And then on top of that, my chiropractic bill that I had paid for for a couple sessions now was my responsibility to pay for. And so I was at a point in my life where I was broke, I was failing a class that really mattered to me and that weighed heavily on my admissions to getting into the nursing program. My back was sore. I was finding it hard to focus on school because of the flashbacks of being held up. And I still didn't know what to do. I felt helpless. I felt completely desperate. I needed someone to help me out and I needed that help right away. Have you thought back yet to that time in your life where you just felt absolutely desperate and didn't know where to turn? If you have thought back to that time, I just want you to think, how did you respond in that situation? When you came to your lowest point, what did you do? You see, today we're going to be looking at two individuals who can be best described as desperate. They're both were at the end of the ropes in their life, so to speak. They both had nowhere else to turn to. There was no one else who could fix their problems. And so we'll see today where they go in their desperation. The two of these uh, people that we'll look at today always tend to be sandwiched together in a story together. And they're mentioned in three of the four Gospels. They're both found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of the person's name is Jairus, and the other is an unnamed woman who has been having a flow of blood for 12 years. And the encounter that we read in Matthew is actually one of the briefest encounters in the entire uh, three mentions in the Gospels. And so there's a lot more detail that's left out, and I think it's really important to understanding the overall picture of this passage. And so what we'll do is we'll read through Matthew initially, which is our section for the, our studies, and then after that we're going to look at Luke's encounter, and it'll kind of fill in the rest of the details and give us a better picture overall. So we'll begin in Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. It says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, and he saw a flute player and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the, and the girl arose. And the report of this went into all that land. So that's Matthew's encounter. Now we're going to look at Luke's encounter. And Luke's encounter is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke 8, 40 through 56 says, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. <clears throat> and behold, there was a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for twelve years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, 
The multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he said to him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, there's a lot that was just mentioned in these two passages, but we'll start just by first looking at the first person we see here mentioned. So what do we know about Jairus? Jairus is the first person we see. The first thing we know about him is that he is a ruler or one of the rulers of the synagogue, which means that his primary responsibility would have probably been overseeing the synagogue itself as well as arranging meetings there. He would have likely cared for both the spiritual and the business matters of the synagogue. He would have been a man who had been well-versed in the scriptures and probably would have been a person that when people had questions about what a passage meant or what Jesus meant when he said this or that, they would have gone to him. And so Jairus had a decent understanding of who God is and his commands. But more than that, <clears throat> and probably a point that is often overlooked, is the fact that in the synagogue, or the synagogue itself, it was established in the city of Capernaum. And it's estimated that 80% of the recorded miracles of Jesus that he did while he was on this earth were done in Capernaum. And so Jesus would have been a well-known figure to him. He would have been a well-known figure to the people of that city, as well as the surrounding areas. And it's possible that Jairus may have actually witnessed firsthand the miracles that Jesus did. However, we also know that Jesus was not appreciated by everyone, including many people who Jairus would have worked with or come into contact with, including the scribes, the Pharisees, and the other religious leaders. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what he was up to. They despised him. Well, what else do we know about Jairus? We know that he was a desperate man. His 12-year-old daughter was ill. And it's not just the common cold or the flu that a kid typically will recover from. It says that she was sick to the point of death, meaning that Jairus didn't have a lot of time. He needed to find someone right away to help him. And he needed to do it quickly or else he was going to lose his daughter. Now, parents... I don't want you to think back, have you had a time in your life where you had a health scare with your child and you thought, you know what, I don't know if they're going to make it to the end of the week. I don't know if they're going to make it to the end of the day or the end of the hour. As someone who doesn't have kids, I can't imagine the agony, the frustration, the fear, the anxiety that goes through the minds of a parent as they look upon their child who's dying and realize they can do nothing to help them. There was a, a movie called John Q., and while it's not based on a true story, it does highlight the, the fact that 
a parent would be willing to do anything to see their child made well again. In the movie, there's a father who has a nine-year-old son with a heart condition who needs a transplant. He needs someone to be a donor for him in order to survive. And after trying and pleading with different people, trying to find a donor, and after begging the insurance company for help, his deny his request, which essentially is like handing his child a death sentence. And in desperation, when the father realizes there's nothing else he can do, he decides that his only last resort he can do is to take the entire hostage and all the staff hostage until he's able to get through that surgery. And he goes forward with that surgery until it's complete, and then he gives himself up. And now in this movie, it's obviously taking things to quite the extreme, and I don't condone his actions, but it does shed light on the fact that as parents, when your child is sick, you'll do anything and everything to make sure your son or your daughter is healthy again. Parents, if you see your child in the hospital deteriorating, wouldn't you also beg the doctors to do whatever they could to help them through their cancer, to get over their sickness or whatever ailments they had? And now Jairus, he would have been a well-off man. He would have likely tried all the home remedies that he would have known. He would have consulted all the nearby physicians. He would have talked to whoever he knew who could help him. And yet nothing seemed to help. This daughter of his was on the brink of death. And Jairus had no control over his situation. And he began realizing that, that there is nothing and no one who can help my little girl. And then Jairus must have remembered all the miracles that Jesus had done in the very city he was working in, in the synagogue. And he thought, maybe, just maybe, I could ask Jesus to heal my daughter. You see, I think Jairus had the faith that Jesus was capable of healing her since he saw that he healed other people. But he must have thought, is he willing to heal her? And he must have thought to himself, well, if I ask him, then what would the other religious leaders think of me? For me to do that, I'd be going against everything I stand for. I, I could lose my job. I would lose my reputation. I don't know. Is it worth it? But then Jairus must have thought or come to the conclusion, you know what? Who cares? I care more about my daughter's health. I care more about her well-being than I could ever care about what other people think of me. And so we see here his response in what he does in Matthew 9, verses 18. It says that Jairus threw himself at Jesus' feet and worshipped him. And that would be a pretty blasphemous thing in the eyes of his fellow colleagues, for Jairus to be worshipping Jesus. And God himself is firm on his stance that you are to worship him and him only. So to worship a mere man would be a blasphemous thing for Jairus to be doing, unless Jairus had realized that Jesus was much more than just a man. Jairus realized that he is the son of God. He is God himself. And so upon realizing who Jesus is, it says that he worships him. And he requests that he see his dying daughter. And he simply asks that Jesus would lay his hand upon her. Now I think it's just important on the side to point out that does Jesus actually have to physically go to see his daughter and lay, her hand, lay his hand upon her for her to be healed? No, he doesn't have to. And it's clear before this that the centurion, he asked Jesus to heal his servant. And he says, you just have to speak the words and he'll be healed. He doesn't have to physically go there and lay his hand upon his, the centurion's servant. And Jesus just speaks the word. And from afar off, without ever laying his hand on him, without ever coming into contact with him, he heals the centurion's servant. And so Jesus is more than able to heal 
without physically going to Jairus' house. But Jairus' faith is not yet to that point where the centurion was. And the beauty of it is that Jesus takes people where they're at in their faith. And he uses moments like this, as we'll see today, to start working and growing their faith more and more. And so, Jairus finally has the attention of Jesus. Jesus arose, he took his disciples towards the house of Jairus. And at this point, Jairus must have been thinking, this is great. I've got the one who can heal my daughter. He's making his way over. This is perfect. My daughter is going to be made well again. Close call. I made it just in time. But then suddenly there's an interruption that Jairus did not foresee. You see, at the same time that all this had been happening, there was another person who was also desperate. And they had been desperate for quite longer, quite a bit longer than Jairus had been. You see, for as long as Jairus had a daughter, this unnamed woman had been suffering. She had spent 12 years with a bleeding issue, 12 years trying to find a remedy, 12 years being told by one doctor that they had the solution to all her problems to then only be disappointed when it didn't work out. 12 years of money being spent on medical bills, on different tests and different trials, only to find out that at the end of it, she was full of medical bills that she couldn't pay anymore. And it says that, in fact, she was in a worse condition after the doctors were done working on her than before she had started. The frustration she must have faced after all these years, the hopeless feeling that this condition is never going to go away. And probably the most difficult feeling was the loneliness of being isolated by herself. Because it's clear in Leviticus that a person who had a bleed, they were considered ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus. And so Leviticus 15 reads that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a bed of impurity. And whatever she lie, and whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanliness of her impurity. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And so the law was very clear. The woman could not be around public. Anything that she touched was unclean. She couldn't come to the synagogue. She couldn't do things with her family or her friends or her loved ones because she was unclean. And so we talk in terms of having difficult times these past three months, isolating ourselves from each other. And we think it's rough not seeing certain loved ones or having to keep a distance. And yet this woman went and had to self-isolate herself for 12 years. She would probably laugh at us thinking that we had it rough for three months. And so with nothing working, with no friends, no family, with no help from the doctors and with no money left in her bank account, she was desperate for someone to heal her. And so she looks to the only one she knows who can do it. And she no doubt has heard about the miracles that he can do. She knows what he's capable of. And so she has a simple idea. Her plan is this. As Jesus passes by, I'm just going to simply touch his garment. I'll get healed and I'll sneak away into the crowd without ever being noticed. And it, it would work out that well that day. The crowd size was a good, large enough size where she could just sneak by and touch it without even being noticed. She could just simply blend in, whereas normally they would probably be able to spot her from a mile away because she's known to be unclean. And yet today she could probably gather in the crowd and blend in with all the other faces. 
And so she probably knew roughly where Jesus would be that day, probably knew the route he was taking. And so she waits for the opportune time. And just as he walks by, it says that she makes a dash out and she touched the hem of his garment. And it says that immediately her blood flow stopped. What an incredible feeling that would be to know that she had been healed. Twelve years of continuous bleeding now stopped completely. What a relief it would have been to her. A miracle had just taken place and she knew it full well. And now she had to finish the last part of her plan, which was to escape from the crowd and just return to a normal life completely healed. But in that very moment, Jesus turns around and asks the crowd, who touched me? And now this would have been a laughable thing because the crowd, you know, it says they were literally compressed or pressing against Jesus as he walked. And no one spoke up. No one confessed to touching him. And Peter essentially says, Lord, who didn't touch you? We've all been touching you. We've all been close by. But Jesus recognizes that this touch was different. This touch was not a simple touch of being close to him. It was a touch done out of faith in Jesus and his power to heal. And we know that Jesus then says that he felt power go out from himself. He knew that, he, he, he knew that she had been healed. It's not that Jesus was unaware or unsure who had touched him. It wasn't that he was trying to figure it out. But he had wanted her to make herself known. He knew full well who had touched him. But he wanted her to identify herself. And so with no place to hide and with everyone else denying who touched him, the woman comes forward trembling and afraid. And it says that she fell down before Jesus and told everyone in the crowd, including Jesus, why she had come and why she had touched Jesus, as well as the healing that she had received. Now, obviously, this would be a fearful thing for her to do. I'm sure she would have even been quite embarrassed to confess these things because she was unclean. She was not supposed to be around this large crowd. But look at how Jesus responds to this woman who's fearful, who's trembling before Jesus. He says to her, be of good cheer, daughter. He tells her, don't be afraid. Don't be worried about what you just did. And then he calls her this close and endearing name. He says, daughter. And then most importantly, he says, your faith has made you well. Now you might be wondering, why would Jesus want to bring her forward? Why didn't he just allow her to go unnoticed by the crowd, be healed, and move on with her life? Well, there's a couple of reasons I could think of as to why Jesus wanted her to come forward and tell her story. And the first and I think most obvious reason is so that the woman herself would know for certain that she was completely made well. She could rest assured that this was not a temporary fix. This was not a euphoric feeling of being made well. This was a miracle that had just taken place. And she was completely healed of her bleeding disorder. It was not going to come back. She had been made well. The second reason I could think of as to why he would bring her forward is so that she would know that it was because of her faith that she was made well. It wasn't because of any reason, because she touched the garment or because she um, did a certain ritual of doing one way or the other. No, it was because she had placed her faith in the fact that Jesus could heal her and that is what led her to be made well. The third thing is that he must have brought her forward so that she would be a testimony to the rest of the crowd that Jesus had just healed this woman. And on top of that, it also brings light to the fact that when she touched him, Jesus was not made defiled or made unclean. In Leviticus, it talks that if anyone touches this woman or anything she touches becomes unclean, and yet when she touches Jesus, 
Jesus doesn't become defiled. Instead, the defiled woman becomes clean and made well. The fourth reason I believe Jesus brought her forward was so that he could draw her out and encourage Jairus and strengthen his faith as he remains uncertain as to what's going to happen to his daughter. He's using this moment to strengthen Jairus' faith, to grow it, to expand it a little bit more. And finally, the woman was brought forward to bring to light to the fact that if anyone has faith like this woman, to simply reach out and faith, believing that Jesus could heal them, not necessarily just of their sickness, but deliver them from their sins. They can be completely made well and cleansed entirely from their sins, no longer defiled or destined to a life of being isolated or separated from God, but instead they can now boldly approach him and be called sons and daughters of God. While we pick back up in the story, we look at Jairus' life, and it must have felt like an eternity as he waited for Jesus to help this woman, as he constantly is thinking about, what is my daughter going through? Is she still doing well? Is she going to make it? What's going to happen? But just in that moment, as Jairus is probably contemplating what's happening at the house, someone from his house comes to him and says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And I think to all the parents listening to this, and especially to Jairus, these words would make your heart sink deep within you. You'd be in a daze wondering, is this real life? Is this really happening to me? Or is this just some horrible dream I'm going to snap out of? I think the frustration, the fear would likely overtaken my thoughts. And I would have thought, if only Jesus had come earlier, then maybe my daughter would be alive. If only maybe I found him sooner, then maybe, you know, this interruption would have never happened. Maybe I would have had a chance for her to live longer. And Jesus, knowing Jairus' fears, knowing his thoughts, knowing how distraught he was in his mind, he provides comforting words to calm his fears by saying, don't be afraid, Jairus. Only believe and she'll be made well. And so Jesus goes to the house where Jairus' daughter has died. And Jesus decides to take three of his disciples with him. He takes Peter, James, and John. And he, he's going to go inside with them. But before he goes inside, they reach the house where they're met by mourners, flute players, and then Jairus and his wife. And in these days, it was customary for people to actually hire professional mourners to cry and to wail loudly for the one who's died. Even poor people would have at least two mourners at their uh, funeral. But I find it interesting how their artificial mourning turns so quickly to ridiculing and scoffing the words of Jesus as he said to them, the little girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now it's very clear that the people around the daughter of Jairus, knew that she wasn't breathing. There was no pulse. She was dead. So how could Jesus be saying she's not dead? You know, if in the hospital, if, if someone came in the room after we pronounced someone dead, and they said, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, she's just sleeping. She's not, she's not, she's not dead. It would be laughable. It'd be, it would be ridicule. I would, I, would, I would scoff at that person because there's no possibility that they're not dead. They have no signs they're showing life. And for this statement to be said by anyone else but Jesus, it would be laughable. But the crowd didn't realize who Jesus is. They didn't realize what he's capable of. They didn't realize that resurrecting a person from the dead 
is well within his power because he is none other than God himself. They didn't realize that this is the same God that's described in Romans 4.17 who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And so Jesus puts the scoffing and unbelieving crowds outside. And with the parents and the little girl and a few of his disciples there as witnesses, he gently takes the little girl by the hand and says, little girl, arise. And just like that, the girl's spirit returns to her and she gets up. And it says in Luke that the parents were astonished. That's probably the biggest understatement of the whole story. They had just witnessed a miracle. They seen Jesus bring their dead child to life. I'm sure their jaws would have dropped seeing her stand up again, moving around, breathing, talking. You know, I've seen a lot of people in my life go from living to dead, but never in my life have I seen anyone arise from their deathbed and start walking, talking, and breathing again. It would be incredible to see that. It shows, though, the power that Jesus has over death. When he commands her to arise, she comes back to life. No one else has that capability. And here we have just witnessed one of the most incredible miracles displayed right before the eyes of Jairus and his wife. And so if we look back at Jairus from the beginning of the story, we start off with a desperate man begging for Jesus to come heal his daughter. And then he gets interrupted by this unnamed woman with a bleed, only to find out that the delay in his plans resulted in it being too late for his daughter because she had already died. But all along, God was using the situation to grow and to strengthen the faith of Jairus. To get him to realize that God is more than capable of doing things outside of our timelines that we put in our minds. He is more than capable of doing things outside of what we would consider humanly possible. God used this desperate time in Jairus' life to point him to the point where he is at that the only thing and the last and only hope is Jesus. He's bringing Jairus to the point where he realizes that Jesus healing his daughter is the only thing that could ever change the circumstance. And God allows delays and even unforeseeable, unforeseeable uh, circumstances in our lives to cause us to fully rely upon him, to cause us to put our faith fully in him. Going back to the story I told you in the beginning of a desperate time in my life, like I said, I was broke. I was failing my class. That really mattered. My back was sore. I was finding it difficult to focus on my classes with all the flashbacks and with all the thoughts back to what happened when I was held up at gunpoint. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where my career was going. I felt helpless. I felt completely desperate. And one day in my car, I just came to that point of just absolute desperation. And I broke down in tears and prayed that the Lord would help me. I said, Lord, the only way I'm going to ever get through this program, the only way I'm going to ever become a nurse is through your miraculous help. I am fully dependent on you for supplying my financial needs because there's no other way I'm having money come in besides through you. And you know what happened? In the next weeks, in the next months, I took that final test and I went from having a failing grade in that class to an A. I ultimately got into that program and I became a nurse because of God's grace and mercy to me. And the money that I needed to pay for that tuition that was coming up due, God provided it just days before my tuition bill was due. And my back that was hurting and sore began healing and no longer has long-term issues from it. 
And I continually look back on that time, that desperate time in my life, and realize that God was teaching me to trust him. He was growing my faith in him. And he was allowing these unforeseeable circumstances to happen in order to cause me to rely on him, to turn to him from help through it. And so maybe you're also going through a desperate time in your life. Who, or maybe what, are you turning to for your help? Let me just suggest to you that the Lord is always available to hear you. He is always there to hear your cry when you reach that point of desperation as I did, or as Jairus did, or even as this woman did. The Lord is available 24-7. So this story, it's placed in the gospel, and I believe it has an individualized lesson for each and every one of us. But I think it also has a bigger picture that it's trying to convey. And these events really reveal the overall picture of who Jesus is. And he's trying to reveal it not only just to the people of Israel, but to the world itself. If we look back before this passage in Matthew, he has already cleansed a leper. He has healed a centurion servant. He has healed this woman of her 12-year ailment. He has healed various sicknesses, which all prove that he has power over sickness and disease. He then cast out demons, showing he has power over the spiritual realm. He's also calmed the winds and the sea, proving that he has power over nature itself. And now in this passage we read that he raised Jairus' daughter back to life, which demonstrates that he has power over death itself. At one point, John the Baptist was discouraged and he was in prison. And so it says in Matthew 11, 2 through 5, that he sent two of his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus' response reveals a lot. It says, Go and tell John these things which, I he which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf heal, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached them. And what Jesus is in effect saying here, he's saying it not only just to John, but to the entire world. He's saying, look at my miracles. They prove that I am God. Who else is able to do these things? Who else is able to perform these signs? Who else is able to perform these wonders? There is no one else. If you want proof that I am who I say I am, I've already demonstrated it to you so clearly. I've shown you sufficient proof for you to believe and to place your faith in me. In fact, he's shown so much proof that he pronounces woes to cities where he did the majority of his miracles that are written about in the Bible, including this one where the synagogue would be. He says in Matthew 11, 20 through 24, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. It says, Woe to you, Kerosene. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which is where the synagogue would have been, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You see, these cities had witnessed so many signs. It was so obvious that God was trying to speak to them. He was trying to get a hold of their hearts, to get them to turn and repent from their sins. 
He's proving that I am God. But even with seeing a person healed from chronic illnesses, and even with a child being raised from the dead, it was not enough to convince the crowds that he was who he says he was, that he is who he says he is. And their hearts became more hardened, and the vast majority refused to believe in him. So I just ask you, where are you this morning? Do you know Jesus personally? Have you reached out in faith as that woman did, believing that Jesus could heal her from her chronic illness? Have you received that free gift of salvation that he offers? Or are you like the rest of the crowd that knew so many facts about him, they brushed up against him, witnessing all his miracles, and they were in the crowd so closely to him, and yet most of them never knew him personally? Does that describe you? A person who knows a lot about Jesus, comes to church regularly even. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you pray every day to him. And yet you've never had a point in your life where you repented of your sins and committed your life to him. Is that you? I had mentioned in the beginning of the message that I had two desperate points in my life that I could remember. The first one I had mentioned was in college, but the other one came even earlier than that, and I was nine years old when that first moment happened. I had grown up going to church. I had heard about Jesus. Uh, I had gone to Sunday school. I had heard about him in the main messages. I had heard the gospel preached to me constantly. I would even pray to him, and yet I never knew him personally. I knew so much about Jesus, and yet I didn't realize that I needed him in my life personally. But one night, I realized for the first time that I was a sinner. And not just a sinner, but a sinner destined to hell. A sinner with my one-way ticket for judgment already punched out. I never felt so desperate in my life as I did when I was nine years old, wanting to know how I could avoid hell and wanting to know how I could be saved. What was the solution to my sin problem? Because I knew there was nothing I could do on my own terms to fix that problem. And in my desperation, I learned that Jesus had done all that work for me. He had died on the cross for my sins. He paid it in full. And all I had to do was believe in him by faith and accept that free gift of salvation. If you haven't this morning trusted in the Lord, I just want to simply ask you to consider why not? What's holding you back from believing the Lord Jesus? What's preventing you from believing that he is God? that he came down to this earth to display the greatest act of love ever known to mankind by paying for your sins in full, by dying on that cross, and then rising again three days later. If you don't know him personally, it's my prayer that you would come to the point of desperation like I did and make that decision to trust him and begin living a life devoted to him and following after him. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful for the time we can spend in your word reading about these two people just desperate for your healing, Lord, desperate for seeing you intervene in their lives. And Lord, we know that you are more than capable of doing that. And Lord, we saw that you miraculously healed both that woman and Jairus' daughter. And Lord, it just displays who you are. You are God. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not yet trusted or come to the knowledge of who you are, hasn't made a personal decision to trust you as their Savior, that they would come to a point of desperation as well and cry out to you and reach out to you, Lord, and accept that free gift of salvation. 
I just pray, Lord, that they would make that decision today. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.